welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined, as always, by my two fellow co-hosts, Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? And Joe Wolfon. What up? Guys, we had a very, very exciting opening weekend of the playoffs. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of storylines to touch on, really, in this podcast. Let's start with this one. I think this one is top of mind because it was probably the most unlikely result. The... Indiana Pacers defeated the Cleveland Cavaliers by a score of 98-80, to 80, uh, famous in the last podcast. I proclaimed that this was going to be a blowout, and I didn't give the Pacers a chance. And Wolfond, um, you know, you stood up for the Pacers. You gave them a lot of credit for having a great season. And uh, they went into Cleveland, and they completely sunned the Cavs. So um, please take your moment to, uh, to, to take your victory lap. All right, well, first of all, I expected it to be a competitive series, but I definitely didn't expect them to go into the queue and wax the Cavs at any point in the series. I don't think I really expected them to even win a road game, uh, let alone beat them by 18. And the way they did it, I think, was what surprised me the most, because kind of what I expected was the Cavs were going to get theirs, but they were going to have trouble stopping the Pacers. But I actually thought the Cavs' defense was mostly fine, and they scored 80 points. Their offensive rating in the game, I think, was 84, and that is insane like I, I really didn't think the Pacers had the horses to uh stop the Cavs offense and honestly the, like the Cavs just didn't look at all prepared for what the Pacers were going to throw at them and the intensity that Indiana was playing with from the jump the Cavs were like super lackadaisical kind of walking through their sets right and it was 33 to 14 after the first quarter yeah there was no sense of intensity and no sense of urgency the role players obviously just didn't make shots mm-hmm. um I think a lot of them were decent looks but um, the biggest takeaway for me, and like I don't think this is something that's going to continue throughout the series, but the fact that Bojan Bogdanovic uh, went 5 of 17 and still managed to be a huge net positive because of the job he did uh, as a primary LeBron defender, doing a good <laughs> enough job that the Pacers could basically stay home on shooters, and um, he was great. like Just being able to kind of slide with LeBron and stay in front of him, uh, poking loose balls away. He was unbelievable, and Victor Oladipo obviously rising to the occasion in a huge, huge way and carrying the Pacers' offense. And I'm, I was super impressed. And, and more than anything, I think I'm, I'm impressed by the fact that after the Cavs got on a roll and mm-hmm. sliced that lead down to seven points, I think everybody expected the Pacers to wilt at that point right. and for it to be you know a cute little story where they got up to a hot start until LeBron and the Cavs came alive. alive. And... They didn't. Like, they took that punch, and they came right back and uh, punched the Cavs in the teeth. So um, that was probably the most impressive performance of Game 1 for any team that I saw. Yeah, and even just if, you know, you, Will, you talked about kind of how we slagged the Pacers last week. One of mm-hmm. the things we mentioned was it was going to be interesting and, and probably a bad time for Oladipo because, um, you know, he had never seen, you know, playoff traps and the way defenses would scheme against right. him in the playoffs, and especially on a team when he's really their only Mm-hmm. true offensive creator um and you know obviously the Cavs are no juggernaut on defense but still he was super impressive and his first Definitely. game as like an alpha first playoff game as an alpha just a spectacular performance and you know Joe mentioned everyone expecting them to collapse and I think the Cavs cut it to seven Oladipo to his credit stayed poised like never looked rattled right uh never kind of ran himself into trouble in a possession I, I can't remember one all game so he really handled it well uh, going back to what Joe said about Bogdanovich on LeBron, yeah, like, listen, no one in the NBA can actually stop LeBron. The best LeBron stoppers 
are guys that can just do enough on them that, like Joe mentioned, you can stay at home on shooters. You don't have to double-team, triple-team, and leave some of those scary shooters around LeBron open. And Bogdanovich did a great job of that. Who the hell would have saw that coming? No and way. the Pacers as a team did a good job staying home mm-hmm. on shooters. And so, you know, even with LeBron on the floor for the 44 minutes that he was on the floor, right. the Cavs offense, I think, with LeBron on the floor, had an offensive rating of like 88. In the four minutes LeBron sat, Cavs offensive rating, 44 points per 100 possession and a minus 71 net rating. Mm. Obviously, a super small, it's a four-minute sample size. Right. But still, that just goes to show you, even in a game where LeBron was, for the most part, great, got a triple-double, like yeah. was yeah. somewhat efficient offensively, not his best. Right. But still, even a game like that, the Cavs need the shooters around him to make shots. Right. And look, this is the thing. I want to give a lot of credit to the the Pacers. I mean, Oladipo coming out with thirty two six four and four is 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 incredible, and um, it really does help rewrite the narrative for him even further uh, because you know he is the most improved player this season. He's going to be voted that way, um, but it still needed to translate to the playoffs um, in his new role because, like you said, this is the first time he's been um, you know game plan for specifically. And if you remember last year's series, and uh, you know when he was a member of the OKC Thunder, he was not very good. He was actually a really big disappointment for the Thunder in their playoff series when they lost to Houston in the first round. So um, it was nice to see Oladipo step up. I mean, he showed no fear whatsoever. Like, in the first quarter, he, like, sized up LeBron and pulled up on his face and, and drilled a three. And he kind of maintained sort of that same aggressiveness, that same, like, you know, that same uh, confidence throughout the entire game. In the fourth quarter, he's making big shots. Um, but from the Cavaliers' perspective, i I'm not necessarily concerned about the fact that they shot 8 of 34 from deep. Obviously, if you are going to rely so heavily on the three ball and the Cavaliers are such a big three-point shooting team that, you know, you're 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 going to have nights where you don't shoot well. There's going to be a lot of variance, and that just comes with it. The bigger concern for me was how soft um, a lot of their role players played, especially the new ones that haven't had playoff experience. Um, you know, I, especially in that fourth quarter, Jordan Clarkson's defense was so disappointing. I mean, just, everyone was just tossing around like a rag doll, like just cutting through him, right? Um, it, and it, to a lesser extent, that same apl- the same thing applies to Larry Nance. And, you know, the Cavaliers are mostly an experienced team, but um, they just they didn't play like an experienced team tonight. What if you, if you see experienced playoff teams, you see a lot of physicality. You see a lot of um, putting up a lot of opposition at the rim. You don't, you know, see people cutting through you and stuff. And, the Cavaliers, they looked really passive. Even LeBron. LeBron didn't play much defense in the first quarter. And throughout the game, he, you know, it wasn't... You would, you would expect LeBron to take some possessions on Oladipo, right? But he never did. He never really said, you know what, this is my matchup. I'm going to stop him. Never. And so, when you put that all into account, I mean, the Cavaliers are in a little bit of trouble. Like, they need to defend better than this. And I know they only allowed 78 or 98 points, but that's the Pacers. You're going to see a lot better offenses than the Pacers coming up in the playoffs. And another thing, too, like to Joe's point about them just looking uh, like a lack of preparation, Ty Lue comes out and says today that uh, someone asked him, I guess, if if he felt at any point the Cavs had their best five-man lineup on the floor, something along those lines in game one. And Ty Lue's quote was something like, we didn't get to it or we didn't get around to it. Like, this is a playoff game. <laughs> and I know, you know, you're favored. You probably go into it thinking, we've got LeBron James or the better team. We're at home. We're not going to lose to the Pacers. But this is a playoff game, and you had 48 minutes, including a stretch in the late third quarter and early fourth, where you had made it a game again. How do you go 48 minutes of a playoff game and not get to mm-hmm. your best five-man lineup? Whatever mm-hmm. you think that is, whether it's correct or not, that it is your best five-man lineup. How do you how do you go 48 minutes of a playoff game without rolling out your best five-man unit? And then, even worse, why would you admit it two days later or a day later? 
Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely, like, I don't even know what to say about that. Um, <laughs> I, I was also trying to figure out, like, what that five-band lineup might be, and I don't know. What do, you, what do you guys think? So, I assumed it was Hill, Corver, LeBron, Love, Nance, but then I realized that that five-band unit actually did log a minute or two together, so I'm going to assume it's Hill, Hood, LeBron, Love, Nance. Yeah. That you, lineup I, did not play a minute together. I, I still feel like Love at the Five is... Is their best lineup iteration. Yeah. I don't. I mean, Nance gives them a little bit more versatility, and like I think they're going to be better defensively in that formation. But uh, I think as far as like what the Pacers are going to be able to defend against, having Love at the five and kind of stretching Miles Turner out is probably going to be their best bet. And at the end of the day, like they, they need to be able to outscore the Pacers, right? Like that again. Like they're they're not going to score eighty points a game again. But the Pacers also, I think, are going to be better offensively than they were in that game, and they got a ton of open looks that they just didn't knock down. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, to be fair to the Cavs, like, it, this reminds me a little bit of, you know, like a couple of years ago when they dumped a couple of games in Toronto and LeBron totally unfazed just said, I've faced a lot of adversity in my career and this isn't one of those times. He said after this game, like, I've been down 3-1 in the finals before. Yeah, I guess a 73-win team. So I, I don't think they're really sweating it. And, and, and I can understand them feeling like... Wow. They don't. They, they don't want to burn LeBron out guarding Oladipo in Game One of the first right. round. So, uh, it, it's. I think it's cool and it's understandable that they're they're maybe not going to go all out in Game One of what they feel like is probably going to be a title chase. But by the way, I mean, I might disagree with the they're not sweating it because if you're not really sweating it, I don't know you would pull out the like. Oh, my greatest accomplishment is a three-one comeback. By the way, like after one game, like you know, maybe if you, you can say that after like you're down like three-one or something. But no, but that's it was what just LeBron surprising. does. Like he he he's always just trying to keep everything in perspective, like that, right? When yeah. when people come at him in the regular season and are like, "Oh, like do you think this is a big regular season game tomorrow?" And he's like, "I've been to seven straight finals. I don't sweat about regular season games." Like he always does that. Yeah, and, I think it's a little bit of mind games too. Sure. Yeah. Against the Pacers, right? For sure. Like for sure. Okay. But right. they, I mean credit to them like they don't look like they're gonna no be phased by mind games like they came out and took care of business in yeah. that game I, I think they believe they're the better team yeah for sure I, I think they played like it and um man Oladipo just a killer like an Oladipo. absolute killer yeah exactly no signs of being shook whatsoever I also didn't think that um the Cavaliers did a lot of trapping for Oladipo they started doing it a little bit in the fourth quarter but by that point it was a little bit too late um, but Oladipo just one on one was just blowing past people, pulling up on people. Like Oladipo's... the pull up, the pull up was huge, and that, yeah. that was like a thing where, as the season went along, like I, that was less and less effective for him. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the Cavs kind of game plan for that by, um, like anytime there was a switch, the guy like backpedaled off of him and basically dared him to take that pull up, and yeah. he just wet it time after time after time. He's a good shooter. He, yeah. he has really improved his jump shot a lot. So I'm very <laughs> impressed with the Pacers. Um, but, you know, with the Cavs, I mean, I think we all ultimately agree that the Cavs still ultimately take this series. But um, if LeBron has to exert more energy earlier in the series, then we might not necessarily see him maintain that sort of same endurance. Because, like I said in last, last week's podcast, um, LeBron, more than anybody else in the league, understands how to pace himself, how to maintain energy, and when to fully exert himself. Especially now in his, thir- you know, did you know it's his 15th season? Did you know he's 33? Um, especially now at his, you know, big age. I mean, he has to really um, pick his spots. And if he can't rest through the first round like he always does, I mean, he's, he keeps sweeping the first round. He keeps getting a ton of rest um, going into the second round. Uh, you know, if he doesn't have that rest, it could really factor into, um, you know, how the playoffs shake out in the Eastern Conference. So moving from... You know, the, the Cavaliers' semi-disaster to the Spurs' full-on disaster. The Spurs, um, we kind of all knew that they were probably won't, 
yeah, they're probably the weakest playoff team heading into last. And that's no disrespect to the Spurs. It's just, um, you know, without Kawhi Leonard, they're they're just they don't really have the next level talent. And you know, they got smacked by the Warriors, um, sort of as everyone expected, really, in the first game. Uh, it wasn't really close. Popovich said that they they looked like deer in the headlights, and Popovich gave sort of an angry press conference. But um, you know, the story of that game and the conversation around that game was completely focused on Kawhi Leonard. And the fact that he wasn't even behind the bench. How could you not support your own team? Um, it doesn't matter if you have a quad injury. Can't you just be in the bench and, like, you know, provide a public face or something like that? But Kawhi Leonard, um, Cash, I'll start with you. How much of a concern is it? And how much does it look like it's inevitable that the two sides are going to split up? Man, we've talked about this for, like, it does not look good right now if you're a Spurs fan, which is the first time in more than two decades that we can say that. Um yeah, I mean, Pop gave the very standard. He's in New York rehabbing with his people, whatever he said. Um, uh, answer, but uh, by the way, can we confirm, like we were talking before we started this podcast, can we confirm, was Kawhi Leonard playing Fortnite? No, during the no, game? no, All right, that was just I, a I looked that up. It's, it's, it's just, just a rumor. rumor. It's That's, just one of those Twitter stories. But the that fact could, that it's believable it's like, just, says yeah, a lot, right? It tells you what's happened to the relationship uh, between Kawhi and the Spurs. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I know nothing anymore. Kawhi, <laughs> Kawhi, the Spurs have somehow ruined a relationship with a franchise player. Kawhi Leonard, I guess, not a lifetime spur. At least it doesn't look like he's going to be like, how do you... We talked this a couple weeks ago. How do you repair this yeah, at this you, point? This guy was cleared by the team. Yeah. Uh, clearly either didn't trust their doctor or whatever, got mm-hmm. different advice from his own people, played nine games in a season when he came in as lit, like literally the I, favorite to an I MVP. I MVP. Yeah, yeah. so did I. Yeah. Most people did. He was the odds-on favorite to an MVP, played nine games, because of a weird, mysterious quad injury that he didn't go with what the team wanted him to do. Now it's the playoffs, and he's not there with his team. Uh, he's in New York rehabbing whatever he's doing. Like, LaMarcus Aldridge was a no-show again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, man. We'll talk more about yeah. LaMarcus. But. Uh, just, like, the Spurs are in trouble, man. And um, you just, like, go up and down that roster. They don't have – even DeJounte Murray, who I like. Mm-hmm. Like, they've got some good young players, and they're the Spurs. But th- they lose Kawhi. Like, their run is over. I yeah, but, no, I'm serious. Like what? Well, it depends what they what they can get well, for right. in a trade, right? Yes. And, and in, but, in a way, I trust their front office to make the best of that situation. But they're they're going to have to rebuild for the first time in decades. Yeah, and but I'm, is, I'm excited. Like if they can get a lottery pick out of that trade, I'm kind of excited to see what they do with the lottery pick. Of course, they haven't had one in two decades. But at the same time, like I think the Spurs operated in this where everyone just assumed everything they did was a stroke of genius, even if it maybe didn't look masterful mm-hmm. at first. You could look at it through the gaze of like, well, it's the Spurs, right? And they'll figure they know what they're doing. And I'm not saying one thing erases all that. Obviously not. We're talking about two decades of excellence, mm-hmm. but still, this is the first dent in that thought process, right? Where now maybe you sit back and think, okay, maybe maybe they didn't have it all figured out. They weren't perfect. Like, they can make some of the same mistakes or just run into the same problems as, you know, 29 other franchises. Well, yeah, for sure. I think it's important to recognize that there was a lot of luck that went into right. the, the run that they went on, right? The mm-hmm. one year that they, David Robinson got injured and they tanked, they get the number one pick and they get Tim Duncan. Right. Uh, Tim Duncan almost goes and signs with the Magic mm-hmm. in 2001. Thank God for Doc Rivers not allowing family members on the plane. That's right. Doc Rivers bails them out. Um, and so Tim Duncan... Stays in San Antonio. I mean, I think there are a lot of different points at which this could have gone the other way. And I think maybe now we're finally seeing, you know, the limits of of that luck. Obviously, there are a lot of things the Spurs have done right. And and the organizational structure that they've put in place has everything to do with the success they've had over the last 20 years. But uh, at a certain point, your luck runs out. And 
I, I don't know if you can put it on Luck. I don't know whether to put this on the Spurs or whether just to put it on Kawhi. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs of the situation. It seems like few people really do. Mm-hmm. But it certainly doesn't seem like Kawhi is committed even to saving face at this point, right? Yeah, because he's, the report's are already out that he's not going to play the rest of the postseason. Well, I'm surprised that the team hasn't just come out and officially ruled him out because realistically, if Kawhi comes in tomorrow and he's like, I'm good to go, I'm ready to play, like, are, are they going to let him play? That's the other thing, too. Like, when this whole saga started, um, Pop played a lot more coy than he is now. If you watched that presser yesterday, it was a little bit uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. Popovich very clearly just says, oh, you'd have to ask his people. Yeah. And when he feel like, they are making it very obvious, as they should, if that's how they feel, that, look, yeah. the ball is now in his court. Yeah. We think he's ready to go. It's his issue. Yeah. And Pop is not shying away from that anymore. Yeah. And look... I feel for Pop. I really do. Because, you know, if Kawhi is not that bridge to the future, and if without Kawhi there is no, like, championship contending Spurs, and there's sort of, there just isn't that possibility. Like, what's Popovich saying around for, right? This is what I'm saying. Like, this the, the this is bigger than just Kawhi Leonard. It's, it's for the whole Spurs organization. Like, Tim Duncan was supposed to pass the torch to Kawhi. And if Kawhi is just going to say, forget that torch, <laughs> I'm not going to play basketball for you guys. Then I mean, what can you what can you really you know uh, look to the Spurs for? Like you know, Popovich, he's seventy. He's got his next job lined up with Team USA. He could just easily do that. He could still stay in the he could still stay in the public uh, spotlight. He could still you know make his impact on society. He can still be you know uh, a, a revered force in basketball if if he just coached Team USA, right? That he could just do that. And if you look at the rest of that Spurs roster, like what is what is there like? You know, Tony Parker's on a on an expensive contract. Luckily, he his contract comes to an end, but he says he wants to play until he's forty. And you know, you not looking good right now. It's not looking good. Hey, listen, guys, he recovered from a worse quad injury than Kawhi <laughs> That's Leonard. What I'm if you, if you... <laughs> Tony Parker's a decade older than Kawhi Leonard and played like an entire NBA season, like a career, a Hall of Fame level career, and he recovered faster. Um, recovered, I mean, is all relative though, right? Uh, like, did you watch him in that game one? I, he, it was yeah, not I pretty. Mean, he, look, that, that, I think that's just Tony Parker at this point. Um, but, I mean, look, Manu Ginobili might leave. I mean, if I were Manu, I'd probably leave. And quite honestly, if I were Manu, I'd be pretty upset at Kawhi. Like, you're just leaving the whole team out to dry here. We always have to, like, answer for you, Kawhi. People grill us with questions all the time because we're right here. But Kawhi, it's not responsible for the rest of this team to just to just dip. He's not even around. You can't ask questions to this guy. And he has a reputation of being silent. It's really unfair what he's doing to his teammates, what he's doing to Popovich. Look, ultimately, it's his decision. If he doesn't feel like he's physically comfortable to play, everyone understands that. But you have to, like, if there's this much controversy around it, there's this much of a circus, you have to come out there. And just for the sake of your teammates, these are people you won championships with. Danny Green is, like, on podcast talking about you, saying you have setbacks. And that's the first we heard about that. Pau Gasol is saying you haven't been around the team in weeks. Like, that's not fair. It's not fair to your teammates. You have to come out and say something. But, of course, Kawhi Leonard is at home or he's in New York or wherever he is. We don't Maybe even know. Maybe playing Fortnite. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe playing Fortnite. That's not confirmed nor denied. The idea of that is really funny to me, that Kawhi Um, Leonard is just playing Fortnite. Obviously, I think that is a rumor, but, you know. Oh, man. It's it's really... And look, Etouard Messina, right? This is also very minor, but look, he was supposed to be the guy that was going to succeed Popovich. Now he's interviewing for other jobs. I mean... But he's been interviewing for other jobs for the last few years, I think. He always seems to be on, on the head coaching radar. But, I mean, if you were Etouard Messina, would you try to stick around and be like, man, I, I can't wait. Rub- are you, are, if you're Etouard Messina, are you rubbing your hands together, like, thinking about the day you get to coach Kyle Anderson? Or are you, like, maybe trying to become a head coach somewhere else? 
You know, like, and I mean, there's a lot of vacancies. He's he being interviewed by Charlotte, so yeah. I was gonna say it depends. I think for him, it depends on where the opportunities are, right? Like, come if, on, Malik Monk is uh, yeah, if, Dwayne Bacon. If I mean, Charlotte's your only option, I'd probably stick it out in San Antonio and hope that RC Buford and Co. give you the same loyalty they gave Pop. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, like you know, you you hit it on the head. Well, when you said like it, I don't think anyone can blame Kawhi if he truly believes and his people believe that he. He does mm-hmm. not. Uh, he does not feel 100. percent This guy's in line to make a lot of money very right. soon, and he should protect that investment. At the end of the day, the only thing person he owes to is himself. If you want to think about it as a business, that those are his uh, where his priorities lie. But like you said, that doesn't stop him from coming out and addressing this and just kind of putting the issue to bed. He could have at any point this season come out and said, you know what, like here it is. Dude. I don't feel ready, right. and I respect you know what the organization's done. I respect Pop. I respect all these things, Manu, whatever. But I just don't feel ready. And I think, you know, he'd still get criticized, whatever, but it'd be a lot less than it is now when people literally have no idea where he is, what mm-hmm. he's doing, why he's not there with his team. Yeah, it leaves way too much room for speculation, yeah. right? And that's why these Fortnite rumors are out there. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, moving on to some more happier news. Um, the Philadelphia 76ers continue to be the hottest team in the entire league. Uh, you know, we cast a little bit of doubt Upon the Sixers, you know, like, we, we want to see if they can do it in the playoffs. In their first game, in the playoffs, with no Joel Embiid, although Embiid did come out with the Phantom of the Opera mask and ring the, uh, the bell, which is just incredible. Um, they smacked the Miami Heat by a score of 130 to 103. Um, it was obviously a very impressive shooting performance that I don't necessarily know if the Sixers can repeat all the time because, you know, you got... Uh, I mean, everybody shot well in the Sixers, but can the Sixers like really go all the way and like do damage, especially if the Cavaliers are, you know, they're, they won't see the Cavs until the Eastern Conference Finals if both teams get that far. Uh, and so, you know, if they see one of Boston or Milwaukee next round, uh, you know, the Sixers could really go to the Eastern Conference Finals. And then at that point, maybe they can go to the finals and who knows from there. So, yeah, I mean, I said this on it previous edition of this podcast like i 100 percent think that they can get there and i agree i don't think they're gonna replicate the the shooting performance that they had in game one but they can absolutely just like get going in like a warriors-esque kind of avalanche and i'm not like comparing them to the warriors they're obviously not at that level yet but the, the way that they turn defense to offense um, the way that Ben Simmons can get going in the open floor, the fact that they can run lineups out there where you have shooting and playmaking at every position, mm-hmm. and just the number of def- like excellent defenders they have on that team is really, really impressive. And we were talking before when we did our preview pod about the impact Hassan Whiteside could have in this series. The Sixers were so unafraid of Hassan Whiteside, they threw <laughs> Ursan Ilyasova out there at center, and they absolutely cooked the heat. Like, Whiteside had two points. But that had two points. He did nothing. They they got worked on the boards. They got worked in transition. Mm-hmm. And they got just absolutely devastated by this spread offense that the Sixers were running out around Ben Simmons. And you, you look at these guys, <laughs> again, that the Sixers just plucked off of the buyout market scrap heap in Ersan Ilyasova and Marco Bellinelli. These guys combined for 42 points, 16 rebounds, 2 assists, 4 steals, a block, 7, 11, 7 of 11 from deep and a plus 30 in game one. Like, that, that, that's totally insane. And I just love the confidence that, that that whole team is playing with right now. Like, Robert Covington 
smothered every single person yeah. that he guarded in that game. He was game. also taking ridiculous threes. Yeah. Dario Sarge was a monster, monster at both yep, ends. Yep. Like he's a, he's just like really coming into his own, I think, and he's a wonderful player. Um, Even Fultz had a really nice move. I mean, he only had five points, but I mean, he was all, like an yeah, all around like contributor. That spin move going to the basket. That's very nice. He likes that spin move a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, when you can't really shoot. And his ability to get to the basket though and wreak some havoc in there and right. opens things up for some of their shooters. Like he. Mm-hmm. Look, he's going to have to learn how, how to shoot again one day. But right now, he doesn't have, for real. Like, right now, he doesn't have to. Um, yeah. His just shot creation for others is helping the team right now. And his getting into the lane is, you know, is a bonus that not a lot of people thought they were going to have because no one expected Fultz to come back and look like a, a playable player this season. Yeah. And yeah. they, they outscored Miami 74-43 in the second half. Like, <laughs> I mean, were... and, and without Embiid, you know, I know we keep yeah. saying that, but, like, man. I don't know what like Miami. I don't think has much hope in this series uh, once Embiid comes back, and they might not have any hope regardless. But uh, the Sixers are scary, man. Yeah, yeah, and like they don't have to shoot this well again. That's the thing because mm-hmm. they can beat you in so many ways, especially when Embiid comes back. This is a very good defensive team yeah. with Joel Embiid on the floor. So whether they're shooting that well or not, okay, maybe they're not going to win more games by twenty-seven, but they should handle the seed team like do you guys see the boston milwaukee game yesterday neither of those teams is beating the sixers if the sixers just play they don't even have to play above their heads if the sixers just play up to their capabilities they're mm. coasting to the east final yeah i mean they should they really should and look it's really impressive to me like like you mentioned those guys that came off the scrap heap basically and they just like plucked them and they put them on the team the sixers have and really you got to give brett brown a lot of credit for this they have instilled these sets where it's just like Two shooters screen for each other, and then they dart to the corners. And for some reason, nobody can stop this action. It's so hard to do. They have so many players that can like are different sizes and of different like skills and quickness that like it's really hard to switch upon them. And also like they have Ben Simmons at the point of attack, just dribbling and then waiting for the play to you know happen. It's very you know like you said earlier, it's very Warriors esque because that's that's a set that the Warriors run a lot. Um, but, you know, the, these shooters will fan out to the corners, and whoever gets open for a split second, Ben Simmons is such a good passer. I mean, in his playoff debut, he had 14 assists. Uh, obviously, it helps when everyone's making shots like crazy, but he, he was delivering them perfectly in the shooter's pocket. They're, they're shooting confidently. If you close out, they're all making a couple, you know, fakes and getting into a mid-range shot or going all the way to the basket. There's just so much composure on this team, and... The one guy that you might have been concerned with is Ben Simmons. Like, can he sort of, you know, handle, um, you know, playoff defenses, sagging off him and stuff? With the shooter shooting like this, it doesn't even matter. And also, with the shooters being as deadly as they are, he's going to have so much space to drive into that yeah. Simmons is going to get his points. And he showed a lot of poise in his first game. I mean, 17, 9, and 14 with two steals in his playoff debut as a rookie. Yeah, and also, I mean, there's another kind of silver lining of Embiid not being there, which is... Um, I, there's he, more space. There's more space, right? And he and Bede shot well from three as a rookie. Like, not really this season. He was like a 30% three-point shooter. Mm-hmm. And so when Simmons is out there without Embiid, the Sixers can really invert the floor. Right. And he can post up while like guys like Dario Saric and J.J. Redick are just darting around off of screens and popping open for catch-and-shoot threes. And they ran those sets you know, pretty frequently in the second half and mm-hmm. just absolutely buried the heat under a torrent of, like, <laughs> catch-and-shoot threes. Yeah. And there was really nothing Miami could do about it. Like, Ben Simmons operating from the post was, like, pretty deadly. As deadly as just him, like, operating pick-and-roll, basically. Yeah, and this is a tough defensive team that they're going against. Miami is under, under Spolstra. It's exactly incredible. And they have depth on the roster. They have a different looks that they can throw. But for some reason, they were just completely helpless against these sets. And 
You know, it, 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 I think it comes down to, like, you have these forwards that can shoot and play make in Ilyasova and Sarge. Uh, and then you have these shooters around them in, you know, Bellinelli and Redick that are also able to put the ball on the floor a little bit. But also, like, just it's hard to switch those actions because then you're creating a mismatch. And I, I don't know. The Sixers are very good. Arguably the most impressive team in the Eastern Conference. They were the most impressive team in game one, I would say. In the yeah. Eastern Easily. Conference. Easily. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, and they have been for a month. A month yeah. and a half. More, yeah. 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 So. so that's, I mean, what, 17 straight wins now? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think 13 of them by double digits. Right. And now they bought more time for Embiid to come back. Like, yeah, if right. you win game one, you don't have any pressure to bring him back for game two. Yeah, even if you lose that game, you still have Embiid coming back, right? So Embiid has already been ruled out for game two, but he said that he's likely to come back for either game two or three, so I guess not two, but maybe three. And he said that if it was up to him, he'd already be out there. And he's cleared concussion protocol. Mm-hmm. He just needs to get in a couple, you know, practices in. And honestly, if the Sixers keep rolling like this, yeah, I wonder there's no, if there's no rush. If they win game two in convincing fashion, I wonder if they just keep him on the shelf. Like, why not buy him some more time if you can? Like, if you have a two nothing lead, I feel like if if there is one thing we know about Embiid, though, he'll force himself back in there. Like, if he if he's sure. medically cleared and it's just kind of like, well, we could be a little cautious, but if he can play, I think Joel Embiid will play. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. But. Uh, the Sixers are scary. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back on the other side, and we're going to do our Make or Miss segment. Welcome back to the second half of Pound the Rock. Um, this is a friendly reminder to support the show, please. Um by rating, uh, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. It's now on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Um, Spotify is coming. Google Play is coming. Um, and the podcast is here every Monday. So we're going to move into our make or miss segment, uh, rapid fire. Um, make is, a you know, you agree with it, and miss is you disagree with it. So let's start with the first one. James Harden had the most impressive performance, make or miss. I'm going to call that a make. I think... Harden came into the playoffs arguably as the guy who had the most to prove. His last playoff game was that just mystifying dud. Uh, game six against San Antonio last year. Was it six or eight points? What I think point? he had 10. He had but, 10. But he was like a minus 30 and shot two of 11 from the field and mm. was just like noticeably invisible and absent and already checked out. So coming in, uh, you know, following that up, his very next playoff game just – Absolutely puts the Rockets on his back, um, hitting absurd step-back threes and just being generally unguardable, whether it was going to the basket and um, cooking pretty much anybody that the Wolves deigned to put on him. Um, That was an unbelievable individual performance. And in a game when the Rockets really needed him to be that good because outside of him, they shot three of 25 from three. And... I mean, we're going to see this at various points in the playoffs, I think, the, you know, the, the downside of the high-variance approach that they take. But 3 of 25 from 3 is insane. And they were also 2 of 16 on wide-open threes per NBA.com. So uh, he had to be every bit as brilliant as he was. And um, it was just uh, just a remarkable offensive performance. And, and defensively, I thought he was perfectly acceptable as well. Like, any time the Wolves tried to post him up, I thought he did a really good job. Um, so... That's a make for me, for sure. I think that's an underrated part of Harden's game, too. Even at his worst defensively, he's always been a surprising post defender because he's stronger he's super than I strong, think. Yeah. Right? Uh, I think Harden was great last night, but I'm going to go miss. I'm going to say Anthony Davis, 
was the best player on NBA court in the opening okay. round of the playoffs. 35 points, 14 boards, I think four blocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's five playoff. It was his first win, but in five playoff games now. The guy's averaging 32, 12, and three for his career. Um, Pretty good. Got that first win. And just, um, I think the one thing Anthony Davis did is he picked up a team that maybe talent wise is not as good. You know, they were right. on the road in Portland, tough place to win against a favored team. And, um, you know, for the most part, took that game uh, over uh, on both ends. Uh, protecting the rim, right. switching out onto some of the Blazers' guards. In the rare times, Drew Holiday and Rajon Rondo didn't get the job done. Uh, just thought he led his team in a way no one else did and elevated them in a way no one else did this weekend. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, this is Anthony Davis' coming out party as a true superstar because, look, I mean, we've all known that he can do this, but for him to set a structure for the rest of his team, because look at the rest of the pieces. They're not like... It's not like it's immediately obvious that Nikola Meritage should be a third option. But when you have a rim protector like that behind him, then suddenly he, his defensive issues aren't as bad. Rondo looks like a much better point guard. We'll talk about Rondo in a second. But, you know, with a role threat like um, Anthony Davis, we forget that Anthony Davis is such a good role threat that Gravis Vasquez once led the league in assists when he played with, you know, with, with Davis one season. Um, yeah, I mean, Davis is, it was really impressive. But I, I still got to go with Harden because – yeah, I mean, it would have been very embarrassing for the Rockets to lose game one. And like you said, um, he needed to get every single one of those 44 points. And he did it mostly in isolation against one of the best defenders in the league. Jimmy Butler is no slouch. Yeah, he did a lot of it against Derrick Rose as well. Well, <laughs> now that's a slouch. Yeah. How dare you? Derrick Rose. Um, Derrick Rose the... had, had a pretty decent offensive game. A good offensive game even. But um, mm. yeah, him guarding James Harden went about as well as you'd expect. Right. Okay, uh, next one, make or miss. Is playoff P a real thing? Is that the performance or like the nickname? I, first of all, did people know that he had this Listen, nickname? Listen, the first three times I heard it, I legit thought they were calling him playoff Pete. And it was so, I was like, why is Paul George want to be called Pete? Is this yeah. like a nickname I never heard of? Also, like Westbrook and Mello got asked about it after the game, and they seemed as confused as the rest of us yeah. about it. So, um, Paul George it, had a nice game. Yeah. Playoff P, assuming that's a real thing, had a really great game. And, uh, yeah, if we're just talking about Paul George elevating his game in the playoffs, I think that's a make because we've seen him do it before. And uh, this game was a perfect illustration. He was talking down the stretch of the regular season about how his shooting mechanics felt weird. They Mm -hmm. looked pretty good in this game. He shot 8 of 11 from 3. Yeah, he's incredible. And and defensively, like... um, Matt Moore has been banging this drum a lot about how like taking Joe Ingles out of the game is like a really important part of like what you can do to basically slow down the Jazz offense, and he did a great job of that. Like at both ends of the floor, he was just a monster, and uh, I think that's probably what we can expect going forward. Yeah, I actually saw. I can't remember who tweeted it, but uh, Ingles was four of four when not guarded by Paul George last night, and I think like one of five Hmm. when he was. Yeah, Paul. You know, listen. Everyone wants stars to elevate their game in the playoffs. And a lot of times that's hard to do just because if you're putting up huge numbers in the regular season, you know, this is something like Chris Paul, for example. Chris Paul's been fantastic. If you just look at numbers in the playoffs over his career, but because he's not elevating his already superb numbers from the regular season, people Mm -hmm. see it as he's missing something. Paul George is one of those few guys who can take already great numbers and somehow reach a new level. Like I looked into it last three years, for example, regular season, Paul George is averaging 23, 6, 4, and 2. Great numbers. Mm Mm-hmm. In the playoffs, 28, 8, 5, and 2, with true shooting percentage of 62. Yeah. Like, this guy legitimately does elevate his play come mid-April, and 
He's play, really he's really playoff. He's P. really yeah. playoff P. Nickname's terrible, but I'll take that game <laughs> any day of the week. Arguably one of the worst nicknames ever. Reminds me of Skateboard P, which is way better, infinitely better. Shout out to Pharrell. But um, think before you mess with playoff P. <laughs> okay, all right. Seriously, Paul George, come up with a better nickname, please. Um, but yes, definitely in the playoffs, Paul George. He's gone toe to toe with LeBron and stuff. So uh, it's it's this is not a surprise, even though he did finish the year uh, really poorly. Next one, make or miss, is playoff Rondo a real thing? Playoff Rondos, six points, eight rebounds, 17 assists in a game that didn't even go over 100 points. I'm going to take this one because I'm going to have to tell you guys I told you so. Last week, I told you guys, don't be surprised if playoff Rondo shows up. I don't know how. Like, the guy's not a good NBA player anymore. But every spring, it's a rite of spring. Rajon Rondo shows up, drops 15 assists on some poor fools, mm-hmm. uh, plays great defense, did it again, him and Drew Holiday oh my combined God. to basically shut down Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum in a way not a lot of teams have done this season. So, yeah, I think playoff Rondo is a real thing, just like national TV Rondo used to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I got to agree. Like <laughs> The performances have spoken for themselves, to be honest. And uh, this this even surprised me less than what he did in those two games with the Bulls last year because I actually thought he was – more or less okay this season mm-hmm. i thought he was like really bad on chicago last year and then suddenly in those two playoff games he looked like the rondo of old yeah so I, I like at that point in time i just sort of stopped second guessing the fact that he was going to find a way to elevate his play come playoff time and uh he did it again in game one so what's a nickname for a uh, playoff rondo <laughs> playoff r that's somehow better than playoff p r-rated playoff Spring. dough <laughs> playoff dough <laughs> okay all right i don't know both of those are better than playoff P. All right. Next it's a one. low bar. Uh, make or miss. Is Giannis at the five the Bucks' best lineup? Or maybe put it a different way. I think that one's definitely a make. But is Giannis at a five enough for the Bucks to get past the, the Celtics? I don't know if it's enough for them to get past the Celtics. But, yeah, I'm definitely going to go with make on it being their best lineup. Um they, they ran it out there for 11 minutes of game one, mm-hmm. um, mostly at the end of regulation and in overtime before he fouled out. Um, 134.3 offensive rating. Right. 129 defensive rating. But if you watch those minutes, it was more or less the Celtics just like making some insane shots. Scary Terry. <laughs> uh, Rogier, really clutch player. Shouts to him. Um, Marcus Morris making like Mar- an insane <laughs> contested step back. Marcus um, Morris's uh, sudden co- transformation into uh, prime LeBron <laughs> in the wake yeah. of Kyrie's injury is really one of the best storylines of the season. Um, yeah, really impressive yeah. <laughs> shot making from uh, from him and the and the rest of that team. Uh, Tatum made like an insane driving reverse layup. Right. They had a couple possessions that were just busted possessions where mm-hmm. the ball happened to end up in the right player's hands with you know a few ticks left on the shot clock, and they either got a bucket or went to the free throw line. So I think um, if you just watch the last few minutes of that game, I actually think the Bucks out-executed the Celtics, which is really surprising considering those two teams' profiles mm-hmm. and what you would expect out of this series, like the Bucks having the talent and like the shot-making ability, but the Celtics being better coached and executing better typically. Right. But I actually thought there was a lot of fluidity in the Bucks' offense when Giannis was playing the five, um, and they were getting a lot of really good looks. And, you know, that last possession where they get Brogdon that uh that game tying three before uh, Rogier hit that ridiculous step back um the just like the terror that Giannis induced when the floor is spread for him um he gets ahead of steam and mm-hmm. he gets a step on Horford and Rogier just leans a little bit 
toward Giannis. You probably shouldn't have. I mean, they were up three points. But yeah. Rozier leans, and Giannis finds Brogdon for an open three to tie the game. I mm-hmm. think um, just the ability of him to attack when the floor is spaced is um, really like their best weapon that they have offensively. And defensively, Like they can absolutely hold it down with him in the middle. Uh, especially when it's Horford out there at center, because Horford typically doesn't even really play inside, right? Like he's operating from the elbows or from the high post, and Giannis did a really good job on him when he was taking out assignment as well. So uh, theoretically, I think this should be a make. And in game one, yeah, in the eleven minutes, uh, Giannis was at center. It did look good, but then you look at the results, and maybe this just speaks to the general poor uh, job that Milwaukee's done of building a roster on Giannis. But the five most used lineups from the regular season that had Giannis as the nominal center with no other bigs on the floor, the net ratings of minus 12, minus three, minus 27, minus 20, and minus four. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to say, yeah, they it should be better with him at center in these like rangier lineups that have shooting around him. But for whatever reason, it hasn't worked. Maybe that speaks to the fact that there's just not enough shooting on this roster, period. Okay. And that if they remake the roster a little bit, um, you can get by with lineups with him at the five and shooters around it, but right now the results don't actually speak to it. Oh, how many? How many of those lineups had Brogdon in it though? A couple of them did. Two or three of them did. Because they, I think that makes a big difference. Like he was out for a while, and and having like he was on the floor for all eleven right. of those minutes in, in game one when Giannis was playing center as well, and like he's really important, I think, for their team and like being able to play alongside Bledsoe uh, as a guy who can actually shoot and, like, defend pretty well. It'd be um, great if Bledsoe could play well, too. And, and, and yeah. yeah, he was Bledsoe not, he was not Bledsoe good. had a rough game. Um, and also, I think and another thing you'd expect is that Jabari would be playing the four in a lot of those lineups, yeah. but he was barely out there in those Giannis at the five lineups at the end of game one, and he, he had a pretty miserable game. And I wonder how that plays out going forward because they were mostly running with Middleton at the four, and... I thought that looked pretty good. And Jabari, like, if he's not going to give you anything on offense, he's going to be a clear minus because he was just getting blown by defensively. So, um, yeah, I'm interested to see how they how they kind of resh- reshape those lineups um, for the rest of the series. We also have never really seen, like, the Bucks at full strength with Middleton playing his best and Parker playing at his best, or both healthy because, like, you know, Parker's having a good year and Middleton's out. And then Middleton comes back, but Parker's like they're never. Yeah, it doesn't uh, and then quite this work. year Middleton had a great year, mm-hmm. but Parker missed most of it. And by the time Parker comes back, he's not peak Jabari yet. So we've never really seen the Bucks at full strength with the ability to go Brogdon, Bledsoe, Middleton, Parker, Giannis with everyone at their best. Yeah, right. I think I think it ultimately speaks to a lack of coherent coaching because the talent is is there to make something like this happen. And, you know, with better coaching, you work on this stuff in the regular season so that come time for the playoffs, you have this versatility, you have this option of playing with Giannis at center, but, you know, they just haven't really developed that. And, you know, instead they played a lot of Tyler Zeller and John Henson. I mean, good God, John Henson and Tyler Zeller. I mean, Giannis, I, I feel, I, sometimes I feel bad for Giannis because he, a player of his caliber should really play, you know, with better teammates than having Jason Terry, you know, which I'll do respect to Jason Terry and everything he's done, but... He's like, you know, old enough to be Giannis's dad. And, you know, and then you have Tyler Zeller with him. Like, it, it's it's a lot for Giannis to overcome. But, um, yeah, it, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I still think that it's a long series. It's going to be an arduous series. Uh, it's probably going to be an ugly one. But, um, it should. It, I don't know. It should be pretty fun. And, my, honestly, my, I said in the last podcast, my expectation is for Giannis to, to, to get past the, uh, the Celtics and really show that he's a superstar. Next one, make or miss. The Raptors' culture change is real. Yeah, I'm going to call that a make. If it wasn't obvious already after 82 games of it, um, the fact that they stuck with it in game one of the playoffs and it worked, mm-hmm. um, 
Raps in game one took six mid-range jumpers. That was fewer than any team outside the Rockets in game one. Um, they were fourth in passes thrown, fourth in assists, tied for second in secondary assists, um, which they were getting a lot of because the Wizards were trapping Lowry and DeRozan out of the pick and roll. Um, DeRozan and Lowry combined for just 28 points on 26 shots, mm-hmm. but they also combined for 15 assists, and they weren't really forcing anything. They were really trusting their teammates, and um, I thought they executed their offense really, really well, especially in the second half. So I think you know that speaks to the fact that they are going to continue trusting the system that they put in place, and having seen it work in game one, you know something that they hadn't done in this entire era of Dwayne Casey coached, Kyle Lowry led uh, Toronto Raptors basketball. The fact that they got it done in Game One, um, I think, is only going to embolden them to keep rolling with this uh, with this culture change. Yeah, yeah, I think there was a lot of examples from that game to prove that the culture change is real. Um, you know, Demar spent a lot of the first half probing uh, the Wizards' defense, and even overall, did not have a good offensive night. Personally, he didn't shoot the ball well. Um, but when you look at the way he probed the defense and moved the ball, and I think the one possession that really kind of encapsulated everything in the fourth quarter, about midway through the fourth quarter. Um, I think it was he had Otto Porter on him, which is what he Oh, usually, the marching Gortat. It was a switch. It was Gort- yeah, he had yeah. Gortat on a switch, but the possession didn't really look like it was going anywhere, and he reset it, mm-hmm. and he brought it back out, yeah. and then uh, the ball eventually found Lowry. Yeah. Who, the ball kept moving, eventually found DeLon Wright, who mm-hmm. traditionally wasn't a great three-point shooter, but worked on that, has become a pretty dependable shooter, right. and he patiently, uh, I can't remember who flew out at him, but he sidestepped it, mm-hmm. calmly drilled a three, and that, to me, like really embodied the Raptors' culture change. That right. Demar reset a possession, it went through Lowry still, and it ended up in one of the young depth role players' hands, who's become a better shooter, much um, better shooter um, right, over yeah. the last year, and that was one of the daggers really down the stretch. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think look, the whole culture change of the Raptors is very much just like a catchphrase, really, to say that the Raptors are not the same old Raptors, and I think, yeah, like you said, I mean. 82 games they have they had proven that of course you know the difference was that the Raptors never really necessarily struggled with the regular season so much as they struggled with the playoffs um but the issues that plagued them you know were that the star players didn't really pass much and they got trapped and that's pretty much the death of the offense for them but it was also that they didn't have supporting players that consistently were able to produce and when you look at the way the Raptors played um in game one you had Serge Ibaka confidently, you know, scoring. He had 23 points. You have JV, um, you know, going to the rim, and he was finishing effectively there. And even JV was even okay on defense, which is usually a knock on JV. And then you look at that young bench. I mean, DeLon Wright had 18 points. Um, you know, he was arguably more productive than someone like John Wall, right? And seriously, 18 points. Fred Van Vliet, who is you know, we've said before is the captain of that bench. He was, he didn't even play cause he had a shoulder injury, but you know, you, the Raptors even miss him. I mean, CJ miles made four threes, even a guy like baby Nagara, who is sort of just this complete unknown commodity that isn't usually in the Raptors rotation. He comes in and he closes out the fourth quarter and completely shuts the, the, the wizards down defensively. So that's all part of the culture change that the fact that the Raptors have a better supporting cast, more depth, and they're able to use that depth that they use in the regular season in the playoffs I think that's pretty much what should encourage Raptors fans the most is that if they're going to be able to translate the regular season play into the playoffs, then they should have way fewer problems than before because before there was always a disconnect. Yeah, and look, I was down at the game this week and I wrote about the depth and how it kind of shone through. And after the game, you know, Dwayne Casey joked all year about, uh, I haven't found the rule book yet that says you can't play more than eight or nine guys mm-hmm. once the playoffs come. 
And I asked him about that after the game, and he said basically the same thing. He said, look, like we've been using this all year, and there's no reason why now the playoffs come and we're all of a sudden going to go away from that. Guys who have been playing their role well all year played their role well in a playoff game, just like we expected it to happen. Right. And I, I really think that's how they see the playoffs going. These guys have been giving them good minutes and doing what they want them to do well all year, and it's going to continue. And, you know, perfect example, if – in the last few years, if Kyle Lowry only takes nine shots in a playoff game, in the same playoff game when DeMar DeRozan goes six of 17, you're usually in trouble. Yeah. And instead, whether the culture reset, whatever, it ended up that in possessions that either were a DeMar Lowry shot attempt, turnover, assist, whatever, free throw attempt, the Raptors ended up with 64 points on 51 possessions. That's so really even in a game when Lowry was uh, maybe not the most assertive with his own offense, and even in a game when DeMar did not shoot the ball well at all, they were still insanely efficient when the offense was running through those two guys. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think it's a surprise that both Lowry and DeRozan got their scoring going in the second half. They did most of their scoring in the second half. Um, I think part of that was because Washington realized these guys are just passing to open shooters. And even big men that can pass and play in a four-on-three scenario such that they can get an open shot somewhere down the line. And they were Washington was getting torched like that. So they backed off a little bit on Larry DeRozan, and Larry DeRozan took those opportunities. Uh, and, you know, they started scoring, and they made a couple of baskets. And especially in the fourth quarter down the stretch, a lot of that was led by Kyle Lowry being willing to attack the basket in a way that, you know, hasn't necessarily been there for him in previous seasons, especially when, you know, they have effective rim protection and a lot of defense, you know, around him. He's got a lot more space. DeRozan's got some more space as well. And, um, you know, the Raptors can beat you in two ways instead of one, which is very important now. And then lastly, make or miss, Draymond is right in saying that people, quote, tend to forget about the Warriors' ability. I'm going to go with a miss. I I don't think that that's the case. I think everyone is pretty well aware of the Warriors and how good they are, how good they are capable of being. And Mm -hmm. honestly, if anybody did forget about how good the Warriors are. It's definitely the Warriors' own fault for just dogging it down the stretch of the regular season. I don't... Dogging the whole season. Yeah, like, I, I mean, but but again, they've been there the whole time as a sleeping giant. I think most, you know, serious basketball fans have acknowledged that and recognized that, you know, at the end of the day, like, a team like the Rockets is still going to have to go through Golden State. I will, you know, continue to say that there there are concerns about that team's ability to score without Steph Curry. And again, like I said... Uh, on the last pot, I think they drew a really favorable first round matchup with the Spurs. Um, we'll see, like if if Steph's not back for round two, uh, how they look, you know, in a different and more challenging matchup. But again, like if that team's fully healthy, I don't think there is another team in the league that can beat them. Um, that's pretty much how I felt all year long. So, yeah, I'm gonna say it's a huge miss because Draymond, wake up! No one forgot uh, the ability of your team. If anything, it was the opposite. People were so. Uh, mind boggled by your seven and 10 finish to the season. And the fact he lost by 40 points to Utah because they know how much ability the team has, you know what I mean? Like no one's looking at it being like, Oh, these guys aren't good anymore. It's the exact opposite. People are looking at it being like, how the hell is this team performing like this without Curry when they still have all the talent at their disposal that they do. Yeah. I think for Draymond is a matter of perspective, right? Like in the last three seasons, it's been warriors, warriors, warriors all the time. All the coverage is on them. Um, and it's just like a, a hoopla and a circus around them. I think this year, the year four of their like like dynasty run, there hasn't been as much media attention. It's not Kevin Durant just joined the team. We got to talk about them all the time. It's not holy crap they're winning seventy three games of the record season. Steph Curry is the unanimous MVP. It's not even the first season where it's like wow these guys are you know took took the next step and now they're really great. This season the narrative is kind of like 
Yeah, they're, they're, they, you know, whatever. They're tired. Like that's not yeah. a that's not a real story to talk about. So I, I don't think there has been as much media attention around them as, as previous, um, you know, as previously. And I think maybe that's what Draymond's talking about. Like maybe people are sleeping on them a little bit in that perspective. But I mean, come on. I think we all realize that when the Warriors are healthy, they are the best team in the league, bar none, and one of the best teams in NBA history. This is also just Draymond's mo, though, right? Like all his teammates True. talk about this. He's talked about it himself. How he needs something to butt up against, mm. and. Like, there was a feature that came out about him last year when the playoffs were about to start about how, you know, like, the Warriors were so good and, like, there was nobody realistically that was going to beat them. And Draymond was just out there kind of, like, like searching the internet for any oh, form yeah, of slander right. about himself or the team that he could find, like, just as a, as a way to, like, give himself that added fuel that he needed. And, um, like, David West was quoted in um, a, a recent feature about the Warriors as well, saying that, like... Um, Draymond just like has gone at the officials this year because like he hasn't found like any other opposing players who have been antagonistic enough to like get that fire out of him. Right. So this is just what he does, right? He's always going to look for whatever edge he can find, whatever form of like disrespect he can find um, to help him get up to, you know, whatever next level he needs to get to um, when the playoffs roll around. So this doesn't really surprise me, but yeah, I agree. It's a miss. Okay, all right. We're going to take another quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to end the podcast taking a playoff flashback to Chris Paul. Welcome back to Pound the Rock. Our playoff flashback today is uh, Chris Paul. And not necessarily a positive memory of Chris Paul. We're not talking about Chris Paul hitting the game over Tim Duncan to eliminate the Spurs. We're talking about Chris Paul in uh, 2014, Game 5, uh, a very, very entertaining series against the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, you know, all Chris Paul had to do was not turn the ball over twice in the span of, like, 17 seconds, but he did. Uh, the Thunder won Game 5, and ultimately uh, they went on to win the series in six games. Obviously, it was tied 2-2 at that time. Uh, and the reason we brought this up is because Chris Paul, every time he makes a late turnover, everyone thinks about this infamous uh, collapse because uh, in game one against the Timberwolves, Chris Paul just hit two free throws. The Rockets are up three points. The inbound is to Chris Paul, who could have just held the ball and got fouled because they were going to intentionally foul him. Instead, he makes this terrible hit ahead pass that completely goes out of bounds. And if the Timberwolves had any timeouts or any actual shooters, they could have tied that game and sent it to overtime, and it would have been more of a nightmare for Chris Paul. So, um, you know, whichever one of you guys wants to start. But, yeah, Chris Paul uh, in his untimely turnovers in 2014. Yeah, I think about this game a lot just because it feels like like an inflection point for that Clippers team, mm -hmm. those Clippers teams. Um, obviously, the biggest one was that 3-1 collapse against the Rockets, but this, uh, you know, happening a year before... Um, th this was the best Clippers team, I think, 2013-14. They won 57 yeah. games. They had the second-best point differential in the league. Um, and they had the Thunder on the ropes. It's 2-2. They're up 13 with four minutes left in Game 5. The Thunder, you know, have a spirited comeback, but the Clippers are still ahead of seven with 45 seconds left. Um, Durant hits, like, an incredible bomb of a three. Right. Um, then the Thunder get a stop. They Durant gets another layup. And so now the Clippers are up two. They have the ball. There's like 14 seconds left. And Chris Paul is dribbling it up the floor and just gets thieved by yeah. Westbrook. Westbrook just comes in and steals the ball from him. Mm -hmm. And then Thunder call a timeout. And then Chris Paul fouls Westbrook shooting a three, 
Westbrook sinks all three free throws, so the Thunder are up one. And then on the final possession, Chris Paul turns it over again, trying to make a pocket pass to Blake Griffin, where he had no angle to make the pass. And they lose that game, and they go on to lose the series in six. And again, like, you know, the next season, they had another opportunity to get back to the conference finals. But it's mm-hmm. like there are so many moments throughout, um, you know, the, the, the few years that that Clippers core was together where they could have taken that next step and things could have looked completely different. Like, they, I don't know if they would have beat the Spurs that year. The Spurs were really, really good that year, obviously. Ended up going on to beat Miami in the finals. But there are all these moments where you wonder how things could have been different for that core that just could never get out of the second round. And, you know, this was maybe their best chance to do it. Yeah, and I think it, you know, I'm always defending, and I know you are too, Joey, I'm always defending Chris Paul's playoff resume because I think if you look at the big picture, Will's like snarling over here, ready to... It's so funny when Chris Paul loses. Ready to eat (laughs) up this. Uh, But yeah, when you look at the big picture and you look at his overall playoff resume, like, the guy's performance has been spectacular. Um, yeah. You know, this is we're talking about one of the probably the three, four best point guards of all time mm-hmm. who has maintained that level of play in the postseason. But that also just goes to tell you, like, even in this series, Will left a note for us here. Chris Paul averaged 22 points, 12 assists, and three steals on 50% shooting in that series. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Yeah. But again, it shows you just how preposterous and how memorable mm-hmm. these, like, weird decisions he makes down the street of these like random playoff games are that we do remember those over his great performances because they're so perplexing whether it's yeah the you know the blown comeback against uh sorry the blown series lead against houston or what we're talking about here even in that i think it was the second turnover in that sequence when you go back and watch it that like mid-air like half talk like, that's a pass Chris Paul never tries to make it. And he's, <laughs> yep. listen, cerebrally, Chris Paul is one of the smartest basketball players I've ever seen. He's, like, he's right there with LeBron yeah. in terms of how smart he is on the court. And then you see him make decisions like that. Or even last night, you see him throw that ball away late in the in a one-possession game. And it's like, how is a guy who's so smart about basketball, who's mm-hmm. been so good at every point of his career, even in the playoffs, how does he make these just random decisions like this yeah. at the most important points of a game? Yeah, and that's the thing. It's a, That's the defining... That's still going to be the defining legacy of Chris Paul. And I think... It, it's unfortunate. It definitely is unfortunate. But that's this is what sports are, right? Like, sports really reduces you down to these, like, big memorable moments. Because, like, even five years after you retired, no one remembers, like, what you did. Like, we're only going to remember Dirk for, like, wow, he beat he, he beat LeBron at his peak, right? Um, and, you know, that, and that's Dirk Nowitzki, a guy that's going to play 21 seasons and stuff, right? It, it, sports really cuts you down to that one moment. And before that, if Dirk didn't do that, then Dirk's one point was going to be that he blew that that series against the We Believe Warriors. Like then and it, put a hole in the wall. Ex- and put a hole in the wall, right? Also but, blew that finals series against the Heat. Like they had a 2, nothing, they had a two yeah. nothing lead in that series. Exactly, right? So like for Chris Paul, he needs to, he so badly needs um, to have a playoff moment that reflects how great he's been in the regular season. Well, you mean like hitting a game-winning floater on one leg against the Spurs in Game 7? Over Tim Duncan. But then <laughs> yeah. what happened in that next series? <laughs> they blew a 3-1 lead. Yeah, They enough. were the original 3-1 <laughs> lead blowers, right? So, I mean, it's it's not fair to Chris Paul, but it's also, at this point, it becomes a meme because Chris Paul, he's so intense about winning. Yeah. He wants to do everything right. He's really Mr. Perfect. Except for these weird moments where he just completely, you know, unravels. And, I would it, still and it's hope, very funny to watch him do this. Because... I would still hope that, like, people can look at the whole body of work, though, of course, And recognize of that the guy has been really, really good in the of playoffs. Course. And, like, no, he's not a playoff choker. Like, no, his play does not fall off in the playoffs. He's just had some, like, really unfortunate moments. Mm-hmm. And 
it's not like you can put that 3-1 collapse on him either. Like, he's just been part of a team right. that has had some really unfortunate playoff moments. And Also, Josh like, Smith and Corey Brewer combined for, like, nine threes. Right. And, like, what are you Come really going to do like, about that? Like, sometimes you just have to be the Alonzo Morning gif and, like, shrug <laughs> it off. And, like, yeah. yeah. Um, but Chris Paul will never do that, though. Chris Paul wants to win so badly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really, like, an interesting and complicated legacy that he has, though, because... Again, like you were saying, he has his defining playoff moment mm-hmm. in 2015 when he hits that shot to win that series over the Spurs. And then the very next round, <laughs> it's like a, an epic catastrophe. And in 2014, uh, like that team was, was rolling. They had this right. epic seven-game series win over the Warriors the year before the Warriors became the you know capital mm-hmm. W Warriors. Um, and he's having just like a phenomenal postseason. And then, you know, has this unfortunate moment in Game 5 against the Thunder, and that's what people remember. So, um, that's part of the reason, like, I'm hoping he can vanquish some of those playoff demons this year. And I expect him to have some signature moments that uh, force people to paint him in a more positive light this year. I really hope so. Yeah. Chris Paul, please, change your reputation, because there's a lot of pressure on you at this point. All right. That does it for this week's podcast. As always, um, please support the podcast by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. It really helps if you guys give five stars or a positive review on iTunes. If you're not going to give five stars, well, just just don't. Okay, just don't. Just <laughs> just keep that comment to yourself. Uh, and you can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and and soon more platforms to come. So for uh, myself, for Joseph, uh, and for Wolfond, we'll be back next week.